And he said he started reading your book as a skeptic, and he was won over. And I can see why, George. It's a wonderful book. It's a touching book. But I want to start with a reflection. You arrive here as a stateless refugee. You don't have citizenship. You've escaped from war-torn Greece, and then you get mixed up with all the wrong sorts: communists, ANC people, resistance fighters, WIT students. And my reflection is this, George: that you turned 90 last year. I was at the celebration. It was a wonderful event at the Ananda Club with many hundreds of people. You have. Achieved what Macbeth says one should have in old age: honor, love, obedience, troops of friends. But you never knew that. In the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, you could never have known that you would be sitting at the Stellenbosch Werkfest as one of its most honored authors. Yes. Uh, I was involved in student politics in the 1948. I had uh, gone to Wits first year BA. My father wanted me to become a doctor, but my marks were. Es and Ds, and I wasn't uh, accepted. And the E for Afrikaans. E in Afrikaans. Also in English. <laughs> and you know why? Uh, the English teacher at Athlone was a Scot. And a communist, and his speech: "Man is born free, but is everywhere else in chains." And the paper on English. Was man is born free, but is everywhere in chains.、Mm. And I decided that I would write an essay on that in my matric. I got an E. I think if you could manage it, he would probably have failed me. I had to write a supplementary examination in English with a very good tutor, and my entry into Wits was conditional to my doing much better in the new examination, and.、Uh, To my pleasant surprise, the, 
the uh, new English uh, examination was a solid, you probably know it, Margaret, are you grieving over golden groves unleafing? Are you grieving over this? Are you grieving over that? Are you grieving over the other? And the final line, Margaret, it is Margaret that you are grieving for. And in the supplementary examination, I discuss this solid. I got a B. Well, we're very glad you did, George. <clears throat> yeah. Because you went on to graduate as a lawyer, to serve on the WITS SRC. And one of the things that I never knew, and I've never asked you, even though we've been associated, I met you at the end of 1982 when I started at the bar. You were never a communist, that emerges from the book, and you were never a member of the ANC. Mandela asked you, you were one of his closest friends, he asked you to help draft the con constitution, and you said to him, do I have to join? And he said, no. So you never had a party affiliation, but you had a profound commitment to justice. Yes. A week after Nelson Mandela was uh, released, I got a call from our, our president, president. George Nelson wants Arthur Chaskelson and you to join the committee that's writing the Constitution. George, could you be explicit? You are talking about the Honorable C.R. Arthur Chaskelson. You said Sir Ramaphosa called you. Yes. Yes. And uh, I said, uh, does that mean that we uh, uh, have to take a card? He said, no, we don't need your 12 rand. <laughs> he knew that neither Arthur Chaskelson nor I would become members of any party or any organization because of the rules of our profession that if you are representing them, you must be neutral and not unduly left, uh, left to do what is expected to you, of you. And, uh, uh, I said, but what exactly have to do, Cyril? He said, well, you have to help uh, write the Constitution. And uh, what else do we have to do? He said, nothing really. I said, nothing? Well, you may have to uh, uh, what do, uh, 
you you may you may have to uh, dance to the toy tune. toy toy toy. But, uh, I'll try and get you an exemption from toy toy. George, I want to pause there because we have an Afrikaans audience and we have a deep contestation in our country about our past. And you quote Mandela as saying that apartheid was a moral genocide. And you yourself say that you say you refer to it as the plunder of the spirit that was the essence of apartheid. And I'm pausing there, George, because in terms of body counts and blood flown, apartheid wasn't, if you're counting bodies, apartheid was not the biggest atrocity on the African continent by any means. But your book helps us understand again why it was seen as a moral genocide, a crime against humanity, the plunder of the spirit that you referred to. And of course, when you were asked to help with the constitution, we had just come to the formal renunciation of apartheid. That was 28 years ago. Yes, I find myself concerned, not only for what Afrikaners may feel, but what Nelson Mandela said was nothing new. In the Freedom Charter, there is a which in 56, South Africa belongs to all who live in it. By 6,000 representatives in Cliptown, this was made part of the Freedom Charter. And Nelson Mandela insisted that we should put that South Africa belongs to all those who live in it. If I may, the secret discussion between Nelson Mandela in Paulsburg prison and Minister of Justice Kutsia from Brantford, where Winnie was. Kubi. Kubi. Uh, Kubi visited Nelson at the hospital where he was recuperating. He asked Nelson was whether there was any possibility of the two sides coming together and having a decent state. Uh, he said, 
good CSN, that his president, Buhata, didn't know that he was talking to Nelson about this. And you recount a very long plane journey where you were asked to come up to the front and sit next to Justice Minister Kwebi Kutsia. The plane got diverted to Durban because of thunderstorms, so it turned into a five-hour conversation at a very crucial time in the tentative contacts between the ANC and the apartheid government. Yes, this is quite quite right. Uh, Kwebi Kutsia is, if I may say so, a good man. I don't know whether he's still alive or not. Can you hear someone for us? Yes. He is well. He's passed away. He's passed he, away. Yeah. We had five hours on the plane because it went to Durban. He was trying to draw out of me knowing that I was a regular visitor to Nelson Mandela and the others in the newly formed United Front. And he wanted to know how far is the majority of the people prepared to go in order to really come to terms. He asked questions. He told me that his president didn't know what he was doing. I, I didn't believe it, but nevertheless, uh, I understood his position. I was worried. If Buddha did not know about this, and I went Zambia to talk to Oliver Tambo at the request of Nelson Mandela. It may be the good security police will be waiting for me and said, hey, where have you been? You spent a couple of days with Oliver Tambo. What about? And uh, I took precaution. Johann Krichler was a clerk to Judge Stein and Ruf. This is Judge Elsie Stein who later became Chief Justice in Blumenthal. And Johann Krichler, may I just say, while we must flatter our audience as well, a number of portraits emerge in your book, George, of the fundamental decency of many Afrikaner people. And you've mentioned Kobe Kutsia. Johan Krichler, of course, is a giant. He's still living. We're very fortunate. He's still a giant in the struggle for, for justice. But you mention a number of, of fundamentally decent people uh, upon whose virtues we were able to try to make our transition. Well, I went to Johan and I told him what I... Nelson told me to do with Oliver and my discussion with Kutsia. I wanted him to join me 
for an afternoon, Saturday afternoon meeting with Kutsia at his home. Would you please come? He said, oh yes, of course. And we went. Kutsia was pleased that one of their number became involved because Johan had been elected the chairman of lawyers for human rights. He was very outspoken. Very outspoken. And, and very Afrikaans. To the hill. Because he actually took the oath for my becoming an advocate. I was refused citizenship for 35 years. It only came about when 20 of the 22 judges learned that I was refused citizenship. And one of their number, Galgat, went to Foster and said, what is this that George Bezos applies for? citizenship and you don't give it to him. Uh, Galgat found me. This is Oscar Galgat who was later a judge of appeal in Bloemfontein and after he retired at 75 he stayed on for 10 or 12 years deep into his 80s as a wing member of the court yeah. and he was known as a tough old critter but he reached out to you, and again for reasons of fundamental decency, yes. and said, go to, the, go to Home Affairs, take photographs, you'll get your citizenship. Well, what happened was that Jules Brody, who was a very he's passed away, a well-known member of the bar, told me that he was going to Greece. I had not been to Greece in 72 when he came to me. And I said, you must go and see my mother. He went. He came back. He told me, I can't understand, George, what your mother told me through an interpreter in the restaurant that she did to. I asked her, how often does George come to the village? And my mother said, since he left in 1941, this was 72, he hasn't been back. Jules came and told me, what the hell is wrong with you? beautiful village by the sea, olive trees, pear trees, this, that, and the other, who spent a wonderful week in the village. And here your mother tells me that you haven't been there at all. I told Jules the reason, that I feared 
that took a Greek passport, the door would be closed behind me. A week later, all the phone, judge called it. George, you bloody fool. What have I done now, judge? Jules came to tell me what is going on with your life. I called the 22 judges of the Transvaal Provincial Division to tell them about your plight. 20 of the 22 said that I was going to foster, tell him that it is manifestly unfair, unfair that a young lawyer who defends Nelson Mandela and Brown Fisher and others and who is respected by us as judges should really be treated the way he is as a pariah and not given citizenship. He told me you must take a Greek passport and I stopped him and said, no, that will not do. He leads a South African life. He is married. He has children. You have to really treat him what he deserves. Foster gave in. He said, okay, let him take a lesson passé, come back, apply for citizenship, guaranteed to be given true to his word that happened. And I should have mentioned Ron Fisher. You know, perhaps you sh should take what I'm about to tell you. You should take a little trip. During the Rivania trial, the head was Brom Fisher, Arthur Chaskelson, Bernard Berenger, Joel Joffe, and I with Lowell. I drove Brom in his car from his house in the northern suburbs to a parking lot in Pretoria. When we were early, he said, George, instead of going up the steps at the back of the court, let's go around the front. I want to show you something at the foot of uh, Paul Kruger statue. I want to test you as Afrikaners. What does it say? Do you know what Kruger said? And what is written at the bottom? You quoted, George, in Dutch. Yeah. Yes, 
in touch and from translated with pride to the as sure as the sun will rise in the morning, freedom will come to Africa. Not poor freedom will come to Africa. And this is something that it was not only Johann Krichler and Ron Fisher. Ron Fisher. That thought the same. Many of the judges did the right thing. You mentioned uh, quite a few of them, George. You mentioned some to whom ignominy attaches, but you also mentioned a large number of judges, including Ramsbottom, H.C. Nicholas, and then, of course, Toss Becker. Oh, Toss Becker, who was one of the panel that acquitted the first treason trial at the end of 1959 and then uh, appeared in the mini Ravonia trial afterwards and was a, a, a fundamentally decent human being. Absolutely. Uh, he asked Nelson in the treason trial when Nelson was in the box. Mr. Mandela, you know and we know what you have written that you want of us whites to do. Are you prepared to do, to accept something less of your demands? so that we can actually live together in peace and prosperity. Nelson was quite open. Here I am in the witness works being cross-examined. I am sure that the whites of this country put something on the table, we will give it consideration, and we want to live together in peace. I can't give you any guarantee because I am alone in the witness box. This was an example. This was an example. Let me also tell you another story about Becker. A father and mother, black, from Natal, came to Nelson Mandela on a Saturday morning. Not, sorry, to, to Oliver Tambo. Yeah. Early on a Saturday morning. Their son was going to be executed on Monday He, they said that there was evidence that someone else had done the killing and not their son. Oliver came 
He was then an attorney in practice in partnership with Mandela. Yes. The most famous named law firm in the history of South Africa, Mandela and Tambo. Yes. So you, and you took many, many briefs from Mandela and, Ta and Tambo. You were kept busy. Yes. I'm sure that they paid for your modest flat in Emerentia with, with the briefs that you did. So Tambo then They were not that generous. <laughs> I'm, sure they, I'm sure you struggled, George, I know. Yeah. Because there were, they weren't always fees for that sort of work. I was also... But it's an enthralling I story, was, George. I was I also very, very lucky to have married an artist with a degree in art. She was early more <laughs> than me, the young advocate. <laughs> George, I, I deflected you. The mother and the son arrived from KwaZulu-Natal. There's an execution pending. Your attorney, Oliver Tambo, briefs you, and you travel in, in, in your car to Pretoria yes. for an urgent interdict for a stay of execution. And to me, that's one of the most telling and moving stories. There are many, many in the book, many beautiful and moving stories. But tell, tell, our, tell our audience what, what happens. You, you arrive at the judge's house because you need a stay and, and the court is not yes. in session. We went to the court, the bell called White, by the way, uh, told us that the duty judge was Judge Baker. He found him to tell him that there was this application. The judge said, let him come to the house. Okay. Oliver Tumble drove the car and I went with Oliver and Mr. White t told us that when we arrived and Oliver was going to accompany me into the home of Judge Becker, White said, hey, blacks can't go into the judges' houses. Stay in your car. Oliver was absolutely livid. But he said at the end, George, you better go in alone. We are here to save a life. George, and you sketch this picture on a Saturday afternoon in the suburbs of Pretoria, the Afrikaans suburbs of Pretoria, you the judge, the Secretary of Justice, who at that stage was what we now call the Director General, having tea and crumpets in the judge's house while Oliver Tambo waits in your car. And when you come out, the only news is that the stay of execution has been granted, and he embraces you. Yeah. It's a beautiful picture. Well, I see that you're a good reader. <laughs> <laughs> and you say it better than I remember it. <laughs> I shall not take over from here. George, I want to, I want to give our audience a good chance because I think a lot of them have got questions for you. But I want to do a wrap-up. And 
Let me say that when I started reading the book, I thought, here's young Bezos. The, the Jewish word is dafka, which means averse or perverse or obstinate. Here Cheeky. you come, pardon? Cheeky. Cheeky, yeah. Cheeky, pig-headed. You come here as a penniless refugee, working in a cafe, living in a back room, qualifying at bits. What do you embrace? You embrace equal rights for white and black. You embrace human dignity for all. You embrace organizational rights. And the thought I had was, what would a young George Bezos embrace today that might be unpopular and dangerous? And one of the notes I made, I thought, well, what about sex workers? What about animal rights? What about cross-border migrants? One of the notes I made was land. And right at the end of your book, I get to land. And you take a stand on the land debate. Your book was finished. It went to the printers before the current controversies. But I wonder if you could tell the audience what you say in that final chapter about the land question. Well, I am concerned because I was part of the writing of the Constitution. There is a section 25 with no less than eight subsections of what the government ought to do in order that the justices of the injustices of the past can be cured. In seventy four, section seventy four, there is also a long uh, thing that the government is supposed to do. What has in fact happened is that except for some minor things done during Mr. Mandela's presidency, the South African government has done absolutely nothing to do a just distribution of the land in South Africa. You join my former colleague, Deputy Chief Justice Moseneke, in lambasting governmental inefficiency and corruption in land well, redistribution. I'm very pleased, I'm very pleased that a young man who spent 12 years on the island came out, became a great advocate, became a great judge, and as we say in the book, good friends. He was your junior when you acted uh, in the Winnie Mandela trial, but you acted with him on many occasions. Oh, yes. Now, you know that uh, generalizations are, who said it, uh, are not to be taken seriously. And uh, 
for people, particularly young people, to presently say that uh, uh, that whites are col colonialists, colonialists. On that basis, I'm a colonialist. But I don't think I am. And I don't think that the people of South Africa are colonialists. The bottom line of your discussion is a warning to tread with dread caution on this issue. And the other thing you say is that the current provision in the Constitution makes ample provision for land justice without being tinkered with. I tell you, there's land which is not used for the benefit of the people of South Africa. It belongs to somebody whose grandfather was a Boer and did there. He is now a businessman, particularly rich. He has this land. He may have a couple bucks on it, bucks, not money. Uh, and uh, he takes his friends to do a bit of shooting every third monthly. And he doesn't pay tax. Uh, he produces nothing. And section 25 says not that you can take it for nothing, but it certainly gives the door to actually take it away for very little and he can go to court and say that it's too little or something like that has not happened at all. And for the idea of a farmer got this land for him in line from his great great grandfather. He produces corn, he has cows, goats, and lamb. Lamb. I'm teasing you. George's favorite dish. <laughs> yeah, lamb on the spit. Huh? George, may I, may I, I want to ask a personal question. I said the last question was going to be my, my last, but... There are a few poignant places where regrets appear. And I'm not going to ask you to speak about Duma Nokwe. You speak, he was the first black advocate in the country. He went into exile. You regret you never contacted him or his family out of fear. To me, that was an enormously poignant and instructive that a person as brave as you could be in fear of what the apartheid police might do if you contacted his family. I don't want to pause there, George. 
The other, the, the question is this. You defended Winnie with some measure of success when she was accused of the abduction and beating of Stompy Sepay. And you mention something that was of great concern to me at that time as a gay man, which was the defense that Winnie asked you to run, which is that she abducted these boys because Paul Verain, the Methodist pastor in Soweto, was sexually abusing them. And I, as a gay activist, was at that very time, 1991, struggling to secure equality for LGBTI people in the Constitution. So the defense you ran, ran was, was a, a, a very grievous one to me. And I, I said so in public. I went on to carte blanche uh, at the time to criticize uh, what happened. But I, 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 want you to, uh, I want to ask you whether you, you speak a great deal about Winnie. And you speak of her sullied reputation. You speak of the grievous... Uh, injury that she inflicted on Nelson uh, with her extramarital affairs, her love affair with Dali and Porfu, which you speak about with great candor. My question is this, before we turn over to the audience, do you have regrets about running that defense in the Winnie kid kidnapping trial? Uh, no, uh, I think that the judge that had... Michael Stechman. Actually, did not believe her. And sentenced her to six months in prison. The Court of Appeal found that he was wrong. I think that the Court of Appeal was right that the things that he found against her. That was on the basis of Koliswa Fati's evidence. Who, who was shown to be a, a, not a decent person or a truthful person. No, no, indeed, even on uh, Judge Corbett's judgment in the appeal court, was Winnie shown to be a decent or truthful person? Absolutely. But may, let, let's leave it there, George. I want to give the last 15, 20 minutes to the audience. But Paul Verain has, of course, also emerged. He's still working in Soweto 26 years, 28 years later, uh, with his reputation intact. Yeah, and, and you accept that as well? I accept that. I talked to him. I talked to him then. He didn't give evidence. I think that he was probably advised not to give evidence. I do not have anything against him, but I don't think that there was evidence that Willie was actually party to the murders. Uh, the trouble with Winnie was that she was very embittered mm. that she was not appointed the leader of the struggle by the UDF, which went to Mrs. Sassoulou. She actually became involved 
with football players, some of whom no doubt did uh, their duty to the authorities because they actually uh, beat up the children Acts of, of brutal thuggery. Yeah. Thuggery. Yeah. And uh, she actually, and they said that they were Mandela's uh, football club. Football club, which was nonsense. Uh, George, may, may I pause there because I'm anxious to give uh, um, members of the audience a chance who want to pick your brain, ask questions. There must be things from the book that they might be interested in raising. May we turn over to them for some questions? Shut Excellent. Up. Thank you. You've Thank been you. asked tougher questions in your life before. Dames and heren, daar is geleentheid om vragen te stellen aan ons gast. Is there anyone who wants to ask? Yes, I see a gentleman in the front. We've got a roving mic. I see that gentleman there. I see two questioners. Can I see a third? And then uh, we'll, we'll take the three questions. I'll, I'll refresh uh, both our memories. Is there a third question or we have only two questions? We have only two. There's a third question right at the back. Is that the lady there? One, two, three. And then, George, I'm going to ask the questioners to state their names, to ask a question in a single sentence. And then I'm going to help us both to, the, to remember them. Yes, sir. Uh, th uh, thank you, Judge. Uh, uh, Advocate uh, George, the judge didn't say how long the sentence may be. This uh, part. <laughs> but what is your name, uh, alsjeblieft? Kernels Laurens. Kernels, alsjeblieft. I want to know about the Ravonia trial, whether the fact that whether the fact that uh, Advocate Bram Fischer was an Afrikaner played any role, whether there was any engagement amongst the advocates and the judge debate, and lastly, uh, why did the uh, state not charge the accused uh, of treason in, and then in the alternative in terms of the Terrorism Act? This is George, it's the Ravonia treason trial. Uh, why were they not charged with treason? Uh, did the fact that Brahm was an Afrikaner play a part? And were there contacts between the defense team and the judge? But we'll first take the second and the third question, and then you'll get a chance to answer. Thank you, Ja, meneer. Ek is Johan de Jager. And I want to ask Mr. Bezos, me as a, an, a retired uh, white Afrikaner, what should I do to be part of the solution amidst all that's happening around us? Why, thank you, Johan. And then the dame links after the last question. I would like to know why you came to South Africa. Would you like to start there, George? What was that last Why time? South Africa? You're on a boat. You're escaping from war-torn Greece and the German occupation. And how do you end up in South Africa? Uh, and not India? Yes. Ons begin daarbij, dan sal ons by Johan en Kernielse vraag nog uitkom. Okay, I'll deal with it. 
what let me deal with the Rivadia trial. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Brown Fisher was the leader of the bar. He was a love recorder. He was respected. He was a communist before the communist party was banned. He was in the team in the before the Rivania trial with easy measles and he did wrong, did a wonderful job. He was a great advocate. He wasn't around when the Rivania people were arrested. He came a couple of weeks later after, particularly Arthur Chaskelson and I had consultation with Walter Sasulu, Governor Vecchi, Cathedra, and others. Arthur Chaskelson was a lawyer's lawyer par excellence. He came back. Arthur Chaskelson was a member of his group. Arthur told him that he must lead the team. He was a man who respected his legal profession. He told Arthur and me that he did not want to be involved without telling us why. Arthur Chaskelson in particular said they're going to be death sentences. There is no lawyer in South Africa that can say what you can say about the death penalty, about the 10 years that was given to the Bursa and so And General Christian de Wet. De Wet. And said, if a person like yourself says it, the judge will have to give it the weight it's worth. So the Afrikaner inslag, Kerniels, was in fact seen as pivotal. Absolutely. And uh, he eventually agreed to become the leader of the team. And we were his... Uh, he was respected by certainly the boy in the UK where he appeared, particularly for mining houses and other cases. Before the Privy Council. Yeah. And uh, he was persuaded 
that he would have to be the leader, and he was. And what happened was, I think, that his presence, in particular as the leader, led to what happened worldwide, that the people on trial were decent people that wanted liberty, they wanted equality, and I will never forget Brahm coming in his Volkswagen, belonging to his daughter, at six o'clock in the morning, into the uh, house. And he shouted at me, Look, the United Nations passed a resolution that this trial should stop. Isn't that a great thing? And of course, we took it up. And the world at large, from the Soviet Union to the United States, from the northern countries to Australia and New Zealand, people, and particularly young people at the universities, started calling for the release of the people. And all that, I think, was because of the integrity of Brown Fisher, the Afrikaner. George, thank you. I think we, we're not going to be able to give Cornelius a comprehensive answer because I want to get to why South Africa and Johan de Jager's question, what should... A, an honorable, committed person of the soil who happens to be a white Afrikaner, what should that person be doing today to make things work, to contribute to a solution rather than to an obstruction? He, the Afrikaner, is doing quite a lot. The Primary school, less than two kilometers from our house in the northern suburbs. Ninety percent of the learners are black. And they're being taught in Afrikaans. And one of the subjects is Afrikaans. It was one of the better schools in the northern suburbs. If I may give it up a detail, we have a woman black woman working for us for the last 17 years. She had a child of five 
with her mother in Zulu. She brought it to our home, brought him, her son. The majority in that school are black children. And a boy who couldn't speak a word of English got in his third year 92% the top of the class. He didn't get an E. George, we have to to end, and I, I'm grateful for your response to Mr. Diach, and I'm afraid we're not going to get to the question, why South Africa, not India? But I want to conclude. Your book at the beginning, in the prologue, says that Arthur Chaskelson died December 2012, Mandela December 2013. You speak about Cathy Catrada, Nadine Gordimer, Jules Brody, and then very touchingly at the end of your book, 2 September 2017, your dearly beloved wife and partner over all these decades, Arita. And then you say, I beg that the bell will now toll for me. But I want to add something to that. That's the prologue. At the end, right at the end of your book, you said, I had a conversation recently with Mrs. Grassa Machel, and I told her that I wish the bell tolls for me. And she said, George, stop thinking about the bell tolling for you and think about the work you've still got to do. <laughs> and she said, and stop crying, George. <laughs> yes, well, you know that... Uh if I may permit it, uh, I had a wife for 70 years. I went to Zambia, I went to uh, Southwest Africa, went to Durban. I did this, I did that. I was away for months. So never once. Let my wife say, hey, you've got a home, you've got sons, three of them. What about spending some of the time at home? And uh, of course, I'm affected by it. But what I think is this, that there are too many Johann Krichlers now that were not there before. And I get upset when they say that uh, they are whites. Because of that, they are colonists. To say to the great, great, great grandson or daughter of a white Afrikaner who 
is a teacher, a professor, a engineer, a successful businessman. Hey, you were not one of us. We must take over. I think it's not what I say. It is what Nelson Mandela said, which I quote in the book. Not only the only one who says that South Africa belongs to all of us. I have always believed that. I know that the security police wanted very urgently to arrest me. But they failed. I think, let me say, my two sons at Vitz University were distributing pamphlets at outside the station. A sergeant went to the Yaga Alexi and took him to the police van. My elder, his elder brother was there as well with pamphlets. And my son Alexi said, David, David, they taken me in. And David rushed to the... And uh, the sergeant said, you get into the van as well. They were taken to the 10th floor of John Foster Square. That's where Tibble was alleged to have jumped out of the window, and which we recently proved that he was actually murdered. They went there, and there was a brigadier, and asked the younger, what's your name? Alexi Bezos. And you, what's your table pieces? The brigadier, are you related to the lawyer? Yes. You know, don't go and tell your father that we arrested you. George, we have to end there. Our time is up. Just about the the thing. And he said, he asked the brigadier, have you got a car in town? Yes, near the station. Sergeant, take these gentlemen to their car. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, George. Thank you, Darmason, here there. George. Two weeks later, in a political case, 
the brigadier came up to me and said, morning, Mr. Bezos, good morning. How are the boys? <laughs> oh, I said, is it you? <laughs> he said, ah, yes. And I thought I would say, you know, Brigadier, if you treated everybody's children the way you treated all my children, would both have an easier life in the country. Keep it up. Thank you. George Bezos, bye, thank you, dames and gentlemen, for a wonderful conversation and spreek ons waardering aan die uit. Thank you.